Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church Online, wherever you're joining us from. My name is Dan, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge. We're really excited to have you with us today as we carry on in our formation series. And I want to ask you a really simple question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word disciple? Disciple. Now, that's not a common word that you probably use a lot in your everyday language. And if you're like most people, what you think of when you think of disciple is 12 guys who were good friends with Jesus and spent a lot of time with him. They asked him a lot of questions. They hung out with him. They learned from him. They said some really smart things. They said some really dumb things. But, but even beyond just the 12 disciples as the characters in Scripture, We also understand disciple as like a serious Christian, right? It's not just someone who shows up at church. It's like a super Christian. It's someone who's all in, who's really intense about their faith. They go to Bible study. They do all the right stuff. Like the super Christian type of person. Or or maybe for you, you hear the word disciple and you connect it to the longer word discipleship. What is the discipleship program? What's the 10 weeks to become a solid disciple? What's the kind of direction or orientation or or what does it look like? I remember when I first became a Christian and went to Bible college, we did a course called Intro to Discipleship. And it was all about how we form into a follower of Jesus. And, And I remember at different points in my spiritual journey, hearing these different forms and understandings of what a disciple was exactly. And everyone seems to have a different idea. I remember really deeply something that I, I was really challenged by, but, but walked through anyway in the context of Bible school. And I remember learning about this, this program, this idea, this discipleship framework, if you will, that ranked people from level one to level seven. Are you a level one disciple or are you a level seven disciple? Level one is you're immature and you're bad and you do bad things and you sin and all these things. And level seven is like, you're peaceful, you're kind, you never sin, you never make any mistake. Like, you're super mature, you're leading other people to Jesus, all those kind of things. And it was great as a framework. It was wonderful to be able to kind of rank people along the line of where do you rank as a disciple? How serious are you? The problem that I found with it was, is we were supposed to rank people or rank ourselves on this discipleship level system. And the problem was day to day, I was a different level. Like on a good day, maybe I'm a level of five or six and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm doing those things. But like on a bad day, I drop down to a level two or level one real fast. I don't get enough sleep. I'm hungry. I get hangry. All of a sudden, my discipleship level shifts all the time. And I remember struggling with this idea of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does discipleship actually look like? And what we need to understand and what we want to invite you to understand today is that for most of church history, to be a disciple is not something that was past tense, to just be characters in the Bible who knew Jesus physically and personally. To be a disciple is not something for super Christians, for people who are hardcore about your faith. To be a disciple is not a descriptor of a certain kind of Christian. It was just the normal understanding of what we now label we use the label Christian for. See, in the New Testament, the people who follow Jesus were called Christians a grand total of three times. Three times in the entirety of the New Testament do we find the word Christian to describe the people who followed Jesus. But 269 times, the authors of Scripture use the language disciple, leaving us to understand, as one commentator notes, the New Testament is a book 
about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. But over the last number of decades in the North American church in particular, we have shifted away from the term disciple and adopted the term Christian as a one-word descriptor of someone who follows Jesus. Are you a Christian? Are they a Christian? Do you know if they are a Christian? That has become the primary term that we've used. The danger with that is that we create a framework and an understanding of faith in Jesus to be primarily something that we can kind of surmise by just saying Christian, which most people in our culture, including you and I, have a theological and philosophical framework for what that means. To be a Christian is to believe certain things about God, is to believe certain things about the world, and oftentimes in our culture is to believe certain things about politics, about sex and gender, or about whatever else it may be. But a disciple is someone who has committed their life to learn from and apprentice to someone else. And we've lost that framework And we've reduced following Jesus down to an intellectual decision about what you believe rather than a holistic reality to which a person dedicates their life to. Here's how author Dallas Willard describes what he calls undiscipled disciples. He says, we have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or even intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one can remain a Christian without any signs of progress in discipleship. So far as it is visible in many of our churches, discipleship is optional. But to present Jesus' lordship as an option leaves it squarely in the category of white wall tires or stereo equipment for a new car. You can do without it. We have reduced discipleship to Jesus as an option. If you really want to, if you're really interested, if you want to go a little bit further, if you want to take your next step, you can be a disciple. You can do a discipleship course. You can do a discipleship program. You can read a discipleship book. You can join a discipleship group. But it's an extra. It's an add-on. It's a bonus to what you've intellectually decided about Jesus. Now, this might work as a growth strategy to get people in the door, get people to raise their hands when we preach the right kind of message, get people in a baptism tank, dunk them and say, look at our numbers, look at how amazing our church is. But over the long haul and the reality of life, the question is not, did we get people to raise their hands? The question is, did we create disciples? This kind of attitude can lead to a lack of flourishing and a form of Christianity Christianity that is neither resilient enough to survive in our cultural moment, where Christianity has been moved to the margins and we no longer are the operating um, power in our culture, that Christians are actually a minority in our world and culture, neither is it a compelling enough vision for life to attract anyone in such a way that it will transform their lives. A weekend experience, sure, try it out, see if it fits, why not? But something that will transform you forever, that will take discipleship. I remember a conversation I had with a mentor of mine. When I was first starting in ministry, I was working in camp ministry. I was talking to this mentor about how do we measure? How do we understand? How do we know if we're being successful? Is it how many kids come to camp? Is it how many kids raise their hand and say they want to accept Jesus? Is it how many kids get connected to you? How do we measure it? And he said this thing to this day that continues to resonate within my soul. He said, we measure by a decade from now. 
a decade from now to see where the students that we have discipled, to see where the students that we have shared the gospel with, to see where they are in a decade is what matters. A decade down the road, when they are 24, 25, 26, 27, are they still following Jesus? Is the moment that they had at camp something that has resonated in their lives and changed the trajectory of their lives? Because this doesn't matter if it's just one exciting moment. Jesus is not in the business of giving us one exciting moment. Jesus wants to change our lives forever. We all know Jesus' call to mission, right? The great commission. You and I know it well. When Jesus, at the end of his time as the resurrected king before he ascends to heaven, says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We love those words, this call. It's core to who we are as Christians, the call of Jesus. Go to the world. Go and tell them who I am. But what is he calling us to do? To make disciples. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't call us to make converts. He doesn't call us to make church attenders. He doesn't call us to make morally impressive people. He doesn't call us to make a certain kind of political allegiance. He calls us to go into the world and make disciples. And when we miss the core call of our mission into the world to not simply preach the gospel and win souls so that we can say, this is how many people came to Christ. This is how many people raised their hand. But we do so in such a way that follows Jesus' command to teach them what it means to obey and observe everything that Jesus has invited us into we find even our own lives experience a gap between what we know and what we do. We know all the right things that we are supposed to believe. Our head captures it. I know what Jesus teaches about this, that, and everything else, but it doesn't line up with what I do. I know what Jesus calls me to be in terms of loving and caring and being kind, and yet I'm still angry and irritated and I get grumpy And I get mean and I say things that I regret. I I understand Jesus' teaching to love my enemies, to pray for those who persecute me. But I'm angry and I'm bitter and and I can't seem to shake this frustration in my life. I know I'm supposed to kill my sin. I know that Jesus calls me to pluck out anything that would cause me to sin. But I keep coming back to that habit. Anytime I'm alone, anytime I'm lonely, anytime I'm struggling, I come back to that thing again and again and again. And we long in our souls for this disintegration to be made right. We feel fragmented and broken and we want to move somewhere to live holy what we believe in our heads and to move it into our hearts and into our bodies. But as Ronald Rollheiser describes, there is something holding us back from this. Here's how he puts it. There is within us a fundamental disease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul. We are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless, serene persons who once in a while become obsessed with our desire, The reverse is true. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, living lives, as Thoreau once described, of quiet desperation, only occasionally experiencing peace. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. 
It intrigues us. It stirs the soul. That's why we love stories of desire, tales of love, sex, wanderlust, haunting nostalgia, boundless ambition, and tragic loss. See, my friends, there is something in us that longs at our core to experience the invitations of Jesus, but there is something holding us back. And the question is simply this, what are we desiring? Because we hear the promises and the invitations of Christ when he says things like, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. When Christ says things like, I have come that you might experience rest in me, we hear that and we go, that's what I want. But something in us desires something else that we can't seem to get there. Paul writes to the Galatians, it is for freedom you have been set free. We desire that freedom, and yet something else seems to be in the way. This gap remains, and we continue to strive because as human beings, that's what we do. Regardless of our background or religion or upbringing or social status or how much money we might have, we search for meaning and an end to which we live our lives towards. Here's how James K.A. Smith describes it in his excellent work, You are what you love. He says, the place we unconsciously strive toward is what ancient philosophers called our telos, our goal, our end. But our telos is not something that we primarily know or believe or think about. Rather, our telos is what we want, what we long for. It is less of an ideal about our ideas and more of a vision of the good life that we desire. It is a picture of flourishing that we imagine in a visceral and often unarticulated or subconscious way. A vague but deep sense of where we think happiness can be found. The question is, what do you really want? Like at the core of who you are, not just what you say you want, not just what you say you love, but what do you actually pursue that shows? You can say you love something, you can say you desire something, but your actions will demonstrate what it is that you are chasing. Well, for the disciple of Jesus, the answer to what our telos, to what our end goal, to where we are aiming is really clear. Jesus himself gives it to us. In Mark chapter 12, we find Jesus teaching in the temple to the Jewish crowds. And he's teaching and he's talking and he's giving what to many people seems like a new teaching a new way of approaching God, a new understanding of who God is and what God is doing and what that looks like in the world. And, and then this scribe comes up to him and they're trying to challenge him and there's this tension and Jesus is saying all these things and we find ourselves in Mark 12, verse 28. Here's what happens. One of the scribes approached Jesus. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered him, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. See, Jesus is not making up words here. These are not original to Jesus. Jesus is actually quoting something. He's quoting from the Torah. He's quoting what's called the Shema. It's the original prayer prayed daily by the followers of Yahweh, the Hebrew Israelite people. The the call of God on their lives to love God in response to the way that God had loved them. Jesus isn't just coming up with something new. He's affirming what's been taught throughout the entirety of the scriptures. A tradition of Old Testament theology. Jesus is giving us our goal. 
our telos, our true north, where we are aiming in this life. What is the aim and the purpose of your life? It seems so simple and straightforward. Love God, love people. And yet somehow we can't seem to get there. Why? Because having the right information is not the same thing as transformation. Information alone cannot lead to transformation. Think about it, right? How many documentaries or things you've seen or YouTube videos or whatever it may be have you watched and seen about healthy eating and exercise and all those kind of things? I might just be talking about me, but maybe this is your story too. I have watched some incredible documentaries about how to exercise, how to eat, and how to be a really healthy person. But guess what? I still destroy a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos when it shows up. Having the right information is not the fullness of what we need to be transformed. If it was, we would just need to read our Bibles once or twice and we'd be good to go. We'd read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say things like, do not be anxious. And we go, okay, sounds good. I won't be anxious anymore. Jesus would say things like, stop sinning. Pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. And we go, okay, perfect. Anything that causes me to sin, I'll just get rid of. I'm good to go. But you and I know that that's not how our life works. That having the information is not the fullness of the picture of what changes us. And we want to be formed into the image of Jesus. We want to experience the life that he's inviting us into. And for many of us, we can even approach and understand what he's asking us to do. We can look at our lives and see the things that are disconnected from what Jesus teaches and what he asks us to do. But but what ends up happening is we set ourselves up to fail when we go into two potential ways of trying to transform, neither of which are full in the biblical picture of what spiritual formation looks like. And there's two kind of ways that we do this. And the first, and this is common for many of us, is it's all me. My transformation is all about me. And this, this approach buys into the modern notion from Rene Descartes. You'll know this quote. I think, therefore I am. I am primarily a thinking being. What I am essentially is a brain on a stick. If I can think it, if I can understand it, if I can get the right information in, I just need the right inputs and I'll be okay. If I go to the right Bible study, if I read the right book, if I read my Bible enough, if I listen to the right sermons then I will be okay. And what this can lead to is a type of legalism, just like the Pharisees who Jesus butted heads with so often. The the Pharisees who Jesus would call whitewashed tombs. You've got the information, you look great on the outside, but in the interior of your life, in the inner part of your soul, there's nothing alive. A whitewashed tomb is beautiful, but there's no life inside. And if we take up the goal and path of spiritual formation in and of our own strength, what we will end up with is lives that look amazing and souls that feel empty. We need something deeper. We know the answers. We know the Bible. We know our theological position. But even in Paul's words, he says, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, or if I know the right theology, or if I do the right thing, or if I've read the right book, or if I listen to enough sermons, but have not love, I am nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. My friends, what you need to know today is really simply this. You cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. To become like Jesus is not simply to get the right information in. And if we try to go about it, we'll quickly fall into discouragement and depression because of a self-hatred at your lack of progress. That no matter how hard you try, you can't beat that sin. 
No matter how much you attend church, you're still filled with anxiety. No matter how much you go through the motions of prayer and Bible reading and tick off the box that says, I did the Christian thing, the fear and the struggle and the brokenness in your life does not subside. And this kind of discouragement will often lead to the second approach to spiritual formation that is not full and does not work. And that's simply to say, it's all God. It's none of me. It's all God. And this approach says that spiritual formation is not my responsibility. How I am formed into the image of Jesus is not my problem. It's God's. He should be the one changing me. He should be the one changing all that I want. He should make my life simple and easy and straightforward. And if not God, maybe a spiritual leader. If I'm not growing spiritually, it's my pastor's fault. It's my small group leader's fault. It's my mentor's fault. It's not my fault. It's someone else's. And then it's giving in to every desire and asking Jesus to bless it. Because if I feel it, it must be true. And what I want, I want. And I can't hold back from my desires. This is the, the cry of our culture and our era. If you want it, if you feel it, it must be true. And it must be good. There is a false assumption that if you just do the basics of Christianity, show up at church, believe the right things, you'll just become a good person that you'll be changed. The problem with this is that it assumes that the purpose of Jesus in our lives is to make bad people good or mean people nice. But the goal of God in your life isn't navel-gazing self-improvement. The goal of God in your life is to transform you from the inside out through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Here's how John Piper puts it. Jesus did not come to serve your broken and sinful desires and appetites. He came to give you new and better appetites. That's what it means to be born again. But the process of spiritual formation is not entirely on your shoulders. That is a weight too massive and it will crush you. But neither is it some side project that is entirely God or someone else's responsibility. Here's how St. Augustine described it so beautifully and so simply. Without God, we can't. But without us, God won't. And so how does that partnership work? Well, here's how Paul describes it in his prayer for the Philippian church as they journey through their story, their journey, their walk of transformation into the image of Christ. Paul writes to them and he prays for them and here's what he prays. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve of the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes filled with the fruit of righteousness, pardon me, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you catch that? There's all sorts of things that Paul says in there that he wants for his disciples. Of knowledge, discernment, wisdom and decision-making, pure and upright living, preparation for Jesus' return, the fruit of the Spirit to impact every part of their lives. But the core that leads to all of that, the first thing Paul prays for, what? That your love will keep on growing that your love will grow and that will lead to all those other things. Why? Because in the words of James K.A. Smith in his book of the same title, you are what you love. You will become like the thing that you love. What you love, what you desire will shape where you go and who you become. And I can't recommend that book enough, but I think the best descriptor of it is actually Jesus himself when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 15. He says this, Do you still lack understanding? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth and passes through the stomach, it's eliminated? But what comes out of your mouth comes from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. 
For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, lying, or slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. See, Jesus is giving a specific teaching, but what is he saying? He's saying it's from your heart that these things flow. What you love will determine what you do, not what you know to be right or wrong. You know that. You've done the wrong thing. You know the right thing to do, and yet you don't do it. You know the thing you ought to do, and yet you don't do it. What you love will determine the direction of your life. Here's how Smith describes it. Our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity. They are the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. That's why Jesus looks to become the living water that springs up in us to change our desires. And that means whether you intend to or not, you are being formed. You are becoming something. When you wake up day after day, whether you mean to or not, you are becoming something. What you love, what you desire is driving you. You are pursuing some kind of goal, some kind of vision of the good life, some kind of telos. And that desire will ultimately determine the kind of person you become. That desire, that love will shape whether you become more or less loving, more or less kind, more or less patient, more or less of the fruit of the Spirit. What I'm trying to say is really this. Spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing. Spiritual formation is simply part of what it means to be a human. And it all comes down to this question, what do you really want? Jesus constantly asks this question everywhere he goes. When he interacts with his disciples, when he invites them to follow him, what he's really asking is, what do you want out of this life? Will you come follow me? When he comes across someone who's struggling and asks him to heal, what does he say? What do you want me to do for you? Or even his question of Peter when he's restoring him to ministry and purpose and all that he's called Peter to do. Do you love me? What's underneath that question? What do you really want? What do you desire? And if we don't consider this, we'll stumble into what we we would call unintentional spiritual formation. And this kind of breakdown is not from us. We, we've borrowed this from some great thinkers around uh, North America doing great work around spiritual formation. But it looks simply like this. Unintentional spiritual formation breaks down into these kind of categories. First of all, it's the stories we believe. Humans are, as Babette Buster calls them, narrative animals. Think about it. We love film. We love literature. Why? We, we find ourselves in story. We want to be in a story. And so the stories that we believe, the things that we function to believe and understand as true, they are forming and shaping us. Your family of origin. What do your parents tell you was important in life? Working, money, this, that, whatever it may be. You've learned those things and you operate with those narratives. Some might be good, some might be bad. What did your family value? What did they ignore? What does the world around you value and ignore? We start to operate with these stories. I'll never be happy unless I own a house. We start to operate with these stories. I'll never truly be fulfilled unless I find a spouse. We start to operate with these stories. Unless I have a certain amount of money in my bank account, I am not successful and I am not worthy. We start to take on these stories that we believe. Secondly, we, we are formed by our habits. James Clear, in his excellent book, Atomic Habits, says we don't rise to the level of our goals. We love goal setting. Just wait for New Year's. Everybody has goals. But we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. We don't rise up to say whatever our dream is, that's what we'll get to. But rather, we fall down to the level of our habits. 
The things you do day in and day out, often subconsciously, they do something to you. Or as one author put it, you make your habits and then your habits make you. What we do shapes what we value, what we love, and what we long for. The way that your body and brain works, and I don't understand this super well, but best as I can understand from reading the best authors on this stuff, is that through dopamine, through serotonin, your brain tells you that when you get a pleasure hit from doing something, from pressing into a habit, it communicates to the rest of your body through your limbic system that that thing is good, that that thing is desirable. Think about it, right? The way that your phone lights up and gives you a notification, it's telling you this is desirable, this is good, and so it becomes a habit. When you wake up, what is the first thing that you do? I'm willing to bet it's just about the same every single day because we are formed by our habits. And then third, we, we operate and are formed in the context of our relationships. Now this one's obvious, right? You become who you spend your time with, right? The, the people you hang out with, your family primarily, your spouse if you have one, even your kids if you are spending time with them, but also your coworkers, your friends, whoever it is you spend your time with will shape you. How you dress, the language you use, I don't just mean inappropriate or appropriate language, I even mean the words you say, the things you talk about, your political beliefs, this, that, or whatever it may be, is shaped by the people you spend your time with. And this can be good. If you're with great people who are admirable and are helping you move towards Jesus, then that is a good thing. But if you're with people who are unhealthy and, and toxic or whatever it may be, that can move you towards unhealth as well. Your relationships will form you. And all of these things, the stories we believe, our habits, and our relationships all operate where? In the context of our culture and environment. You don't get to decide the place and the time that you live in. You just live in it. You live in Maple Ridge, likely, or in the surrounding area, in British Columbia, in Canada. We live in a specific place that there is values and stories that shape what it means to be from Maple Ridge, what it means to be from British Columbia, what it means to be Canadian, what it means to even be North American, that our culture and our environment will shape us. But it's not just the place we live, it's also the time that we live in. We live in 2023. There is values and understandings that our world currently has in the place that we live in the year 2023 that were not held 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and 20, 30, 40 years from now, those things will change, will be formed by the environment that we live in. It's a post-COVID world. We are past what's called, been called the sexual revolution, and gender and sexuality is all kind of up in the air for, for conversation and, and not understanding exactly what that means. That is the culture that we live in but we also live in the digital age. That the culture of you live your life through a phone and through a computer screen is impacting you. All of these things, your habits, your relationships, and the stories that you believe are all formed through typically your iPhone. Typically the ways that you are engaging media and content and all of these things. And all of these things will shape and form you. And you don't even have to try. You don't have to wake up and consciously think about these things. They'll just do it. You will just become the type of person who checks their phone first thing in the morning. You will just become the type of person who is alike to the group of friends that they hang out with. You will just live into the story, typically of your family of origin, again and again and again. Carl Jung puts it this way, until you make the subconscious conscience, you will continue in it and call it fate. 
all these things press in and form us. And James Clear describes it. He says, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. And maybe you get lucky. Maybe it weighs out to be slightly more good than bad. Or maybe you're just getting really good at ignoring and numbing the things that you know are unhealthy in your life. At continuing on and not healing the relationships that are broken. At continuing the habits that you know are actually hurting and harming your relationship with God and others. See, you have this spoken desire to love God and love people. But really what's happening is not exactly that. It leaves us with this question that if we're willing to look honestly at, we need to use to assess who are we becoming? When you look at your life, when you look at your habits, when you look at the stories that you believe and your relationships, who are you becoming? And that leaves us with the invitation that Jesus gives. And I love how Eugene Peterson describes this invitation. He says, one way to define spiritual life or spiritual formation is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. My friends, we want to invite you to follow Jesus. Not simply to call yourself a Christian, but to be a disciple. Because that's our heart as a church. The big sign that we put up everywhere, that we repeat again and again and again, is that we want our city to know Jesus. That's not simply about a raised hand or identifying as a Christian. That is about being sold out as a disciple of Christ. Irenaeus, the church father, describes it this way. He says, the glory of God is this, man fully alive. To live into the abundant life that God has called you into. And so how do we form in this way? How do we position ourselves in a partnership with the Holy Spirit in our lives to prepare and form towards a goal and a love of, of loving Jesus and loving others? We push back against the forces that move quietly, that move subtly and move subconsciously. The unintentional spiritual formation, we push back with intentional spiritual formation. Last year, I ran a half marathon for the first time in my life. And, and, and what's, uh, what's very helpful is that that's actually a primary biblical picture uh, of what uh, the growth and life in spiritual formation looks like. That of an athlete, that of a runner. And what you need to understand is, is that what, what you need to run a marathon or a half marathon is not willpower. You might decide tomorrow that you want to run a marathon, and that's beautiful and that's amazing. You as a human being have the capacity to do that, but you likely will not be able to wake up tomorrow and run a marathon unless you are already a marathon runner. What you need is actually to train, to prepare, to practice. What you need is not just willpower. What you need is a regular rhythm of preparing for it. And so what we want to offer you in counter to unintentional spiritual formation is a counter diagram that is called intentional spiritual formation. Here's how it looks. Rather than just living into the stories we believe, it's understanding proper teaching. And that's what we're doing right now. Hearing good preaching well, maybe not good preaching, but at least doing what I can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listening to uh, good, solid teachers, reading your Bible, reading books that help to form and shape you into the image of Jesus, learning, taking a Ridge Essentials discipleship class to press in to what it means to grow. What I want you to hear from the first part of this message is not that we are anti-intellectualism. 
is not that we are against you being formed in your mind. We believe that it is core and vital to how we grow. We just think it's not the whole picture. See, if you want to run around a marathon to, to continue that illustration, you should research. You should go to a shoe store. Get the right shoes. Research. How do you stretch? How do you prepare? How do you run? How do you rest? Print off the training plan. Pin it up on your wall. Get the right information to be able to do the thing you want to do. But the aim of teaching is not simply to get you the right information. It's to invite you into a vision of something more beautiful. Here's how Antoine de Saint-Exupéry I'm sorry, I failed French, so I probably butchered that pronunciation. Here's how he describes it. He's a poet. He says it this way. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. The goal of teaching is not just to get the right information in you. We could just send you a link. There's way better preachers. There's way better information out there than me or anybody else. What I'm saying, though, is that the idea of teaching is to invite you into a greater vision. Romans 12.2 famously says, Do not conform to the way of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And secondly, in counter to habits, we practice. We enter into practices. This is counterformation, where we actually consider and then choose our habits to form us into the type of person that we want to be. That each of those things become, like James Clear describes it, votes towards the type of person we want to be. This is the difference between training and trying. That it's not willpower, that it's actually about little movements forward in training. Here's how the training for a marathon works. If you've ever done this, it's really, really simple. You start really, really small. In the first week of marathon training, you don't typically run more than five kilometers. A marathon's 42 kilometers. How, how could that possibly work? Your will says you want to run 42 kilometers, but week one, you run one kilometer, maybe two, maybe three. You take breaks, you breathe, you drink water. It, it's slow. It's little by little over the long haul, but it's more than just going for a run. It's learning the habits that are going to help press into that thing that you actually desire. It's figuring out the right sleep. It's choosing to wake up at the right time in order to go out and do that run. It's figuring out the right diet so you can eat and, and have the correct food and nutrients to do that. It's learning how to stretch and then doing those stretches. It's having rest days. It's all these practices feeding into the goal that you have. And what do we have for those as followers of Jesus? The spiritual disciplines. Prayer and Bible reading are not things we tick off the box. They're little incremental things that we do to push us and pull us deeper into a relationship with God that will shape us. And we have to enter into those things. That's practices. And then rather than just relationships, we choose to enter into committed biblical community. Now, you might be wondering, what's the difference? Well, the difference between relationships and community is community you commit to other people, whether that's family, whether that's a small group, whether that's a, uh, a core group of people you do life with, that you want to follow Jesus alongside one another. Now, here's my question for you. If you're in a Ridge community, is your Ridge community a place where you have deeply committed that you are following Jesus together? Because if what you do with your community is just hang out, is just chit-chat, then it's just relationship. It's not community. It's just kind of navigating unintentionally. But if you are pressing in and saying, I'm going to hold one another accountable, we are going to press into what it looks like for us to follow Jesus together, that's the invitation. What happens in community? People see the real you. 
Community brings out the very best and the very worst in us, right? Anyone who's married knows this. Marriage is one of the primary and most intense forms of community that there is. But any form of community looks like that. The closer you get to someone, the people who have seen the best of me are my wife and my closest friends. You know who's seen the worst of me? My wife and my closest friends. Those who are closest to me see the real me. But in just regular old relationships, what happens when we see the real you? What happens when you see someone struggle or hurt or blow up or mess up or whatever it may be? You're out. But in Christian community, we commit deeply to one another that no matter what, we walk alongside to encourage, to speak the truth in love, and to not give up on what God is doing in people's lives. Real community is deeply challenging, but it is so so worth it. And then counter to all uh, the environment and the culture that we live in, all these things take place through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's not enough time to get into this in its entirety, but what we want you to understand is that the power of God working in you could be more powerful than all the forces working outside of you to form and to shape you. There is all sorts of inputs coming in, media, social media, uh, politics, this, that, and the other thing, coming in at you in your environment. But what if the Holy Spirit living and at work in you as a follower of Jesus is forming you in a more powerful way? What if the voice of God and not the clicks of social media was what led you? What if the presence of Jesus and not your need to be impressive to others was what was leading you? All of these things happen in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the invitation as we wrap up. And at its core, this is why we're doing this series. This is what we want to press into, is because our dream as pastors and leaders here at Ridge Church is actually the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. Let me just pray it over you even in this moment. We pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And you might feel like this is intense. You might feel like this is hard, and it'll take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of effort, and you're right. You might even recoil and be saying, well, that's not grace. That's not invitational. Jesus doesn't give us works-based righteousness, and that's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. As Willard puts it, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. This is an invitation into a life of discipleship, not pressure on you to try and make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you more, but you're invited to experience more of him through the cost of discipleship. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship, all about the intensity of costly grace. He writes it, grace is costly because it condemns your sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but has delivered him up to us. This is not uh, pressure. This is not works-based righteousness. This is an invitation to experience the grace of God in your life. Does discipleship have a cost? Yes. Is it worth it? Without question. Dallas Willard famously asked the question, yeah, we think about the the call and the cost of discipleship, but have we ever considered the cost of non-discipleship? He wrote that non-discipleship will cost you abiding peace. 
It will cost you a life that is penetrated through by love and faith that sees everything in light of God's power for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging and broken of circumstances, and power to do what is right and withstand the forces of either evil. In short, non-discipleship will cost you exactly the abundance of life that Jesus has invited you into. My friends, the invitation today is that you can be changed. That you do not have to accept the gap between where you are and where God is calling you to be. You don't have to give in to a life of secret sin and shame that controls you. You don't have to walk through this life with a half hearted faith. You are invited to put your trust and faith in God and have him form and shape you through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer for the people in Philippi is beautiful, but it's prefaced with this promise that Paul gives us from his word. Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Spiritual formation is a journey that God is inviting you to be in on. And so would you take that step and join in that journey to watch the Holy Spirit transform you through community, through practices, and through teaching of the gospel into your heart, that the gospel might transform and change you in the way that only Christ can. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much that you have invited us into something that is so beautiful and so powerful. God, that spiritual formation is not a self-improvement project. It's not self-help. It's not just doing some things to try and be a good person. God, you did not come to make bad people good. You came to make dead people alive. So we pray that by your spirit, even right now, Jesus, make us alive in you. Bring us to new life. Allow us to be formed by what you've called us into. That, Jesus, you might transform and change our loves. That what we desire most of all is not our sin, is not the lies of the enemy, but rather that what we desire most of all is to live into our goal, our true north, our telos, that we would love you, God, with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our soul, and with all of our mind, and that we would love others as ourselves. Jesus, we hold our hands open. We know we cannot do this. We know we cannot do this on our own, so we invite you, come Holy Spirit, to do the work that you want to do in our lives and transform us into your image as you renew us by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and we thank you for who you are and how deeply you love us. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Ridge Church Online. As you go, I want to leave you with these words and this invitation that Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says, I urge you, therefore, my brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your true act of spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. My friends, you are invited. Change is possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Would you go in that grace? Reach out if you want any form of prayer. We'd love to connect with you and have a great rest of your day.